Welcome to another installment of Christmas in Quarantine. It's Christmas Past's impromptu miniseries of indeterminate length. Stay subscribed for one new episode every day until things are looking better with the COVID-19 crisis. Now, in addition to washing your hands and practicing social distancing, I hope you're also taking the chance to catch up on some reading during your time at home. If you're like me, you usually have more books on your reading list than you can get to. I'm currently reading A Literary Christmas, a collection of short stories from contemporary authors like Paul Auster and Tobias Wolfe. And just recently, I finished reading Marley, the latest novel from John Clinch. It's a return to the world of Dickens and A Christmas Carol and the untold story of Ebenezer Scrooge's relationship with his business partner, Jacob Marley. We know little about Marley from Dickens' original, but here he's brought vividly to life in a cracking tale about double dealings, false identities, debauchery, and perhaps above all else, the making of the Ebenezer Scrooge we meet in A Christmas Carol. I caught up with John Clinch recently from his home in Vermont. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'll come back at the end to wrap up and say goodbye, but for now, here's my recent conversation with author John Clinch. John Clinch, welcome to Christmas Past. You know, I'd rather be on Christmas Past than Christmas Future. <laughs> I think you speak for all of us there. That's the scary one, Buzz. Thank you. Now, listen, I think like most um, people my age, I'm in my 40s now, one of my first exposures to the world of Marley and Scrooge was in Mickey's Christmas Carol, where Goofy plays the part of Marley. And we meet him very briefly and without a lot of detail. And so it wasn't until I was in my later childhood, maybe eight or nine, where I saw something that's a little more faithful to the book. It was a stage adaptation where that scene between Marley and Scrooge is a little more fully realized. And you see Marley in all of his anguish and all of the chains and everything. Everything, talking about how he's doomed to walk the earth, making up for his sins. And I remember on the ride home from that play asking my mother, gosh, what did that guy do? Oh, you and, did. And okay. now, <laughs> all these decades later, I have some of those answers. Could you introduce us a little bit to the Marley that we meet in your novel, Marley? Oh, he's, he, he's, he's a very bad man, but an interesting one. Um, I guess is the, the best way I can describe him. Um, there, there were, as you point out, so many empty spaces around Marley as there as there are around uh, actually a number of characters in in uh, in A Christmas Carol. Uh, all we know about him is that he was Ebenezer Scrooge's business partner. We don't know what he saw in Ebenezer Scrooge. You know, that's an interesting question right there. Um, what was the nature of their of their relationship? Um, but we, we, we meet a man who is capable of, uh, A, getting the better of Ebenezer Scrooge. We meet a man who actually makes Scrooge into the person that he becomes by the time uh, Dickens begins his story in A Christmas Carol. Uh, we, we, a man who, who helps to shape Ebenezer Scrooge into the, into the man we know, which means that Ebenezer Scrooge must start out as a different man. But you know what? That's what novels are all about, isn't it? Yeah. And you touched on a lot of things that I want to get into in a lot more detail, because one of them is that in A Christmas Carol, I think it would be fair to say that we know a lot about uh, 
about um, Marley without knowing much about him, if that makes sense. Like you said, we know he was in business with Scrooge. We know that Scrooge lives in his house. And there's just that one sentence that that's the house that Scrooge lives in is Marley's. But we don't know why or any of the details behind that. He's living in Marley's apartments inside Marley's house. And and I'm not sure if you can learn that from... Let me take a step back. Um, I have learned over the last few months that in, in many ways... A Christmas Carol is more a, a theatrical or filmic experience for most Americans than it is a narrative book experience. Um, and uh, so you never know whether that detail has even been been transferred to the uh, to the narrative when you're watching it in, as a movie or on a, or on a stage. Uh, it is certainly there in the book, uh, and it's a it, it's a it's a good question. Um, we have Ebenezer Scrooge living in his partner's house in his and sleeping in his partner's bed seven years after his partner died. What the hell is basically the question that uh, any sensible person might ask himself? Because Dickens must have meant something by it. Exactly. Yeah. You, know, you, you don't you don't lay that down in the book and uh, w- without having some reason for it. But he never describes it. Never goes into any, de- into any detail. And so I think my big question is, as you're approaching this source material, you have a lot of dots that you can start connecting. And you also have a lot of just, you know, the history of what was going on in the world at that time that you can start to use as fodder for for creating the story. How do you approach something like this? And maybe a better first question is, what is what is it about the character of Marley that you wanted to explore in the first place? Uh, as my wife always points out, I'm really good at uh, writing about terrible people who make awful decisions. <laughs> <laughs> and when you find your strength, Brian, you go with it. Um, but really, no, he's 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 the kind of character that that interests me, or he could have he he had the potential to be the kind of character who interested me. Um, when you when you remember that at the close of my book. Um, Scrooge has to be a money-obsessed miser, friendless and relationless, pretty much. Um, his sister has to be dead. He has to be. Uh, he has to have very little relationship with his nephew. He is broken at all. The, the relationship with his uh, fiance Belle has been broken off. Um, he, all he has is accounting house, and so it, it, it's. And Marley has to be in a position where he could um, want to um, carry on a relationship with Ebenezer Scrooge after his death, want to come to his rescue, want to become his savior, um, which may be a surprising thing for a wicked man to want to do. But when you start with with those things, you begin to realize that there's a there's a narrative for each of them and that Ebenezer Scrooge could start out better than he ends up and Marley could start out worse than he ends up and the two of them could have the, this narrative that 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 that, that uh, establishes paths that cross and uh, that was what interested me was to to generate some complexity some emotional and biographical and psychological complexity of a sort that really wasn't what 
Charles Dickens was up to. I mean, he was he was anything but a, a psychological novelist, and that's because there weren't such things as psychological novelists in those days. Um, so to to be able to take those characters that he gave us, um, whom we whom we come to accept as real by God, um, we've we, we've read their stories so many times. Their their story seems so much a part of our our hearts and our experience of not just the holiday, but the world, um, that if we say, okay, these men were real, what were their lives like? Then we've got some interesting interesting questions that we can ask and some interesting stories to tell. Now, one thing that really interested me is the idea that these are characters that people know in a single context when, as it relates to this one story that, that is a Christmas story. In your novel, Marley, although Christmas does make its appearance a couple of times, is not a yeah. Christmas story. And yet, as a reader, I came into it with certain expectations. We have to hear Scrooge say, bah humbug, at least once and things like that. Eventually, so, yes. So how do you strike that balance, like hitting all the notes that you know your readers are waiting for, but then also making this its own story as it it's most certainly is? Well, one of the things that we were really interested in doing uh, with the novel as a as a thing in the marketplace was making certain that it presented itself not as a Christmas story. Um, hence the hence the iron chains across the cover. You know, this is this is clearly a story about something other than Christmas. Although the world is full of people who are going to buy it and read it and take it out of the library and uh, and expect something that uh, even though we've told them it's something different, they'll still expect what they expect. Um, but the, for me, um, the wonderful thing about um, working in the world of A Christmas Carol is that you can conjure it up without working really hard, without pushing it too hard. Um, there are people ask me sometimes, well, how did you manage to recreate uh, London in, in the early 1800s and the late 1700s. And my answer is I didn't. My answer is I reminded you of all the things that Charles Dickens already told you about because he gave us that world so clearly. And therefore a guy like me, if he wants to play in that sandbox and make it seem like he's really sitting in that sandbox with Charles Dickens, um, all he has to do is start conjuring up some of those things that Dickens gave us in the first place. The, uh, the fog, the dirty streets, the cold, the wind biting at the windows, the, uh, the, the, the bells in the towers. There's all kinds of bells in A Christmas Carol, and there are all kinds of bells in Marley. Um, but those little things can really bring it right back to life and... You don't need to go much farther. Now, I did, as you say, th there are a number of scenes that take place on Christmas Eves and on Christmas Days. Um, there are at least two or three uh, scenes set on a Christmas Eve or a Christmas Day, including the death of Marley because he died on Christmas Eve. Um, but uh, and in fact, I wasn't sure when, when I had him dying at the end of the book. I was just thinking about this a few minutes ago. Um, I did not in my first draft point out that it, that it was Christmas Eve when he was dying because I thought, well, everybody knows that everybody who paid attention to a Christmas carol knows that this last scene that I'm writing where he's got to have his final epiphany before he vanishes off into the ether is happening on Christmas Eve. 
But then I talked about it with my editor and we decided, you know, I may as well mention it <laughs> for those who aren't paying attention, uh, just because it was, you know, it, it, it's part of what uh, what Dickens gave us. And uh, and it, it sort of put a put a bow on the end a bow, not like a Christmas wrapping on the on the uh, on the end of the novel, which had already visited Christmas two or three times. I wonder did I visit Christmas as many times in this book as Dickens did in A Christmas Carol? Maybe. I won't, I'll have to go back yeah, and that, see. Yeah, that is an interesting question. Somebody can write a thesis about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned the, the way that you sort of um, evoke the reader's memory or, or their perception of what London must have been like through the eyes of Dickens. And that's one thing that really stood out for me in the book is, is the language. I mean, I had this distinct feeling of like I kind of felt cold and damp as I was reading the entire book because of the way that the language brings out um, a lot of those feelings. And another thing that we need to touch on, you said, you know, the cover of the book has some iron chains on it, which, of course, we see Marley carrying. But in this book, those iron chains have a whole different meaning. Um, so we can I, I'd like to go into that. Like, how did you pick out some of those details on what kind of business Marley was going to be in and and other things like that? Well, that was really the first question to be answered um, when I when I sat down to think about what kind of shape the book might take. There were a few things that I wanted that, that I knew I really wanted to think about and to talk about and to try to bring to life. One of them, and maybe we'll get to this later, I don't want to jump ahead, but one of them was the fact that there were two wonderful women in Miss Carol. Um, and those two characters, uh, Belle and Fan, um, were sort of unused by Dickens. Um, he, it was really, of course, uh, it was uh, Scrooge's book, and uh, so among those things, and we can go into that in more detail if you want to later, but that was a thing. And the, uh, the other issue that I really wanted to figure out was the nature of their business, because Dickens gave us nothing. Um, we know that they had a counting house and we know that they had uh, a warehouse. So they were probably in some kind of mercantile business. Um, that's all he seemed to think we need to know. Um, and it's enough. Uh, it was certainly enough for his purposes, and it, it established what he wanted to do. Um, as I began to think about their ages and try to plot out how old they would have been, Marley would have been, for example, when he died, how old Scrooge was seven years later when A Christmas Carol takes place, um, when they would have met, if they had met as they did in my book when they're young boys, uh, when that would have been, when they would have gone into business together, at what age, blah, 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 blah. This all sounds very dry and dull. Uh, but it turned out that during the period when they could have been first building their fortune, the slave trade in England was legal. And during the period when their fortune was probably getting, reaching its greatest height, the slave trade became illegal. And I thought, oh, my God, if I need wickedness for Marley to get involved in, I need look no further. And uh, and sure enough, so the uh, by, by establishing that the business they were in was not just trade, but to some measure, the triangular trade, the slave trade and the trade in cotton and molasses and so forth. Um, by establishing that, I had. 
and by establishing that Marley was going to be a duplicitous individual, um, all of a sudden I had uh, a legal structure that would cause him to be forced out of this business and um, a moral compass or lack thereof on his part that would make him want to stay in. Mm. And yeah, I sort of mentioned how, um, you know, we're talking about the the chains, which most people have, are familiar with in one context, but mean something else in this book. There are other little symbols or images like how Marley has the bandage over his head and we in A Christmas Carol. And, and now we understand why through your book. There are all these very carefully curated images that are presented in A Christmas Carol without context. And you provide that context. So were did those come to you organically or did you think like, OK, this is the one that needs the most explanation or has the most potential to flesh out this story? Um, because, you know, clearly you could have chosen anything or made up, up other things, too. There must have been some details that really stood out to you that just warranted um, that further explanation. Yeah. You know, as I, as I go back through, if I were to reread A Christmas Carol today, I would probably f- find other things. Um, you know, for example, the little ghostly bell that rings when uh, when the ghosts appear. Um, that would be an interesting thing to have played with, which I ignored altogether. Uh, you know, there are the little bells in his t- around around uh, Scrooge's apartment. Um, those things, but yeah, um, what so sometimes you you discover that things that you want to do and things that you ought to do really come together. Um, and you mentioned the uh, the rag around Marley's head. Um, which is always part of his costume, whether you see him on stage or you see him played by um, Muppets or uh, you know what Statler and, Wal- and Waldorf played Mar- Marley Brothers, I think in the in the Great Muppet version. Um, whoever th- that's always part of the costume because it was so clearly part of Dickens's description of him. Um, and when people talk about that or think about that, the uh, the answer that I've always heard. Um, as to why Marley has that bandage around his head has to do with um, his being a corpse. And we don't want the jaw of the corpse falling open in the coffin or whatever. Um, And it occurred to me, maybe there's another reason. Maybe there's an additional reason for Marley to have dental problems, toothache problems. Um, And when I began to, to think how Marley could die, and, uh, well, it's probably not too much out of line to say that uh, he, uh, Marley is involved in a sexually transmitted disease. Um, it's, uh, it became clear that, oh, boy, that could be another explanation for his having that, uh, that, that bandage around his head. Um, and those things, those things make people, they remind people of where, you're, of where the material came from. And it gives them, uh, you know, sort of an inside sense of, oh, yeah, there's more here. And that makes it seem more real. And reality is what we're going for. You know, anything we can do to, to, to make these things seem, oh, yes, of course, there's a real physical reason for his having that bandage around, around his jaw. Um, and that makes it seem more real. That makes Marley seem more real. That makes his woe seem more real. Um, and, uh, and all of that is to the good if you're a writer. Yeah. 
Now, something you mentioned before that I'm excited to talk about are the the two women in the novel who, in A Christmas Carol, are, are mentioned. They're there. And not only in Marley do you really flesh them out and make them real, but you actually make them much more part of the story that eventually becomes A Christmas Carol than I ever would have imagined, right? They are very, very much linked to how things turn out later on in the story. So could you introduce us to Belle and Fan? They're every bit as important as uh, as Scrooge and Marley, really. Um, they, they they make a foursome. Um, and as I began to think about the book, also, I mean the the well the the book begins with a with sort of a flash forward to a to a moment where Marley is demonstrating his his uh, oh well many of his worst traits in, in terms of dishonesty and forgery and so forth. And then we have a brief, uh, some scenes where they're boys together. And then we're, we, then, then the, when we finally get to the present moment, we're with the two women, Bell and Fan, um, and with, with Scrooge and, uh, and how he's relating to his sister and to her best friend, uh, Bell. Um, it impressed me when I began to think about how to structure the narrative that those two sort of unused or only halfway used characters um, in their relationship with Scrooge and Marley would really form the basis for a completely unwritten, until I got around to it, uh, Victorian novel. Um, because that's the kind of thing that that novels were about in those days. Um, and the idea that, uh, that, that, that a woman was of marriageable age and she would be looking for a spouse, she'd be looking for a spouse with a certain amount of funds to keep her and so forth. Um, all of those very conventional motifs of the, of the Victorian novel, um, just sprang to life to me with the, uh, with Belle and Fan. And suddenly if we had Bell's relationship with Scrooge. We might have Fan's relationship. Uh, we might have Fan's relationship with um, Marley. And uh, suddenly it, it, it had the real feel of a novel of its time. And, uh, and that's a thing that you go for as well. And a lot of the action wouldn't have been possible or would have been felt lesser were it not for Belle and Van's parents playing a big role, too. Uh, like you mentioned, all the stuff about marriage, we see how uh, Mother Scrooge is really encouraging her to um, pursue a relationship with Marley, even though she knows it might not be in her best interest. Um, so, yeah, it, it really has a very fully realized uh, feeling. And a lot of Scrooge's actions are really um, the result of the influence of Belle's father. Oh, and it's only through but between Belle's father who doesn't mean any harm and Marley who does, <laughs> you know, those are the things that destroy his relationship with Bell and that make him into the man he is. Well, that's a really interesting thing. The feeling that I came away with from Marley was just, aside from it being a really well-written and enjoyable novel, is that on the one hand, it is the untold story of Marley, but on the other hand, it's Scrooge's origin story. Like through yeah. Marley, we learn everything we know about Scrooge. Yeah, this is this is like making a movie where we meet Captain America, but calling it the Red Skull. <laughs> no, and 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 it's very true. I mean, it's it's Marley's book in many many ways, um, but uh, it's also Scrooge's book, and it would it probably would have been silly to call it Scrooge because, in fact, many things have been called Scrooge. Um, including the of, of Scrooge for the, the great Bill Murray movie. Um, 
great, I don't know, but the Bill Murray movie. <laughs> the Bill Murray and David Johansson movie, now that I think about oh, it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the Scrooge uh, we meet as a young man is, uh, I think, you know, what, what today we might um, ascribe as someone who's, you know, maybe like a type A, a little bit, um, you know, I, I don't know, depending on the way that the read or what the reader takes into it. You know, he could be someone like almost borderline Asperger's-y, but, you know, just very much like I care about columns and rows and numbers and facts and people are just sort of a necessary evil that you have to contend with to get through life. Brian, you are absolutely correct about that. Um in fact, it's a thing that comes up from time to time when people read Marley carefully that uh, that Scrooge was indeed, and I meant for him to be, um, somewhere on the autism spectrum. Um, and that that caused him to be good at certain things and less good at certain other things. I mean, there, there are moments when he... Uh, when he very clearly exhibits really characteristic kinds of behavior, um, he he has difficulty looking people squarely in the eye. Um, he tends he sometimes he'll he'll, he'll look at Bell or he'll look at uh, Harry Balfour, and his gaze will drift over to the window. He'll look out the window instead. Um, he has trouble with those things. Um, so yeah, I really meant him to be that way, and it and it, it set him up. Um, to have a difficult time with certain aspects of his life, unfortunately. And yet, uh, I don't know if it's too pat to describe it this way, the reason that he becomes what he does is because he does it all for love, right? The, the, yes, he does. Trying and to get his house in order for Bell is ultimately the first domino to fall in his tragic story. Yes, if only he can get rid of the slave trade, if only he can do the Christian thing, and he wants to not he wants to for Belle and he wants to for himself and he wants to for her father and he wants to because it's the right thing to do. He's discovered that. Um, but doing that becomes impossible and it destroys him. Now, one thing um, in the novel Christmas Carol, or novella, I suppose, is that there's that one line where Marley is saying, you know, look, I arranged all of this for you because I'm trying to save you. And Scrooge says, you've always been a good friend to me, uh, Jacob, which yes. by the end of Marley, we get the sense maybe that isn't what Scrooge thought of Jacob once he learns the truth of how Jacob had treated him throughout his life. And so... There is that moment toward the end of, of Marley's life where, as far as we know, he doesn't share this with anybody. He has this moment of redemption where he's done yeah. all kinds of horrible things, but he's sort of turning the tide. He understands that he's lived a life of, of just terrible deeds and that he kind of wants to turn things around. We start to see it where he's focusing more on creating art for its own sake and he makes a gift to family. He's starting to turn the corner. Yes. And so yeah. – but but at the same time, like it it all ends that that last scene between Scrooge and Marley isn't a friendly one. It's it's very much a business <laughs> transaction. Anything but anything but you know what my my reading this may seem this will probably surprise you, but my reading of that of that line you were always a friend to me, a good friend to me. I think it was. I mean, you probably had it right. Um, my reading of that line is that Ebenezer Scrooge is saying it as you would say it to any other monster who has entered your house. You have always been a good friend to me, not meaning it, but so as to mollify him, which would be a possible reading. So if he, so if his, 
so for him to say, oh, Marley, you have always been, you've always been good to me. Um, well, for crying out loud, here's this ghost stalking around your apartment with his chains and his drooping jaw and so forth. Well, you may as well try to get on his good side. I think that's a perfect way to end it. If anyone here ever meets Marley, make sure you get on his good side. And the best way to meet Marley is to read the book Marley by John Clinch. John Clinch, thank you so much for being on Christmas Past. Brian, thank you for the invitation. It's been a real treat. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. And if you get a chance to read Marley, I'd love to know what you think. You can drop me a line anytime at christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com or find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you haven't joined the Christmas Past private Facebook group yet, well, maybe today's the day you will. I'll come back again tomorrow with something else to bring you some Christmas spirit during these uncertain times. But until then, let me remind you as always that Christmas Past is produced in sunny San Mateo, California by yours truly, Brian Earle. I hope you're enjoying these daily Christmas in Quarantine episodes, and I'll have a feeling that you have people in your life who could also use a little Christmas spirit right about now, so why not help more people discover this show? It's as simple as telling a friend about it or leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. These are both quick and painless ways to show your support, and they really do make a big difference. And if you do leave a review on Apple Podcasts, I'll even send you a Christmas past sticker and a handwritten Christmas card is my way of saying thanks. Reach out to me for details. Until tomorrow, stay safe and healthy, look out for one another, and may your days be merry and bright. <laughs>